Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Good morning. Good morning. Good, Good afternoon. Morning. Good evening. Good middle good of the middle night. Of the night. Yes. yes. Well, you look good. Uh, where oh, are you? Where are you today? You. People always are asking me what are you doing, and I want to know what to be able to tell them where you are. So where are you today? Well, as I will talk about in my when we get caught up with me, um, I did a full circle. So I'm back in Folsom at my cousin's house, where I recorded quite a few episodes before I went. Ah, my journey. your cousin's backyard where no one knew where it was. <laughs> <laughs> Except you're inside today. It must be chilly or something. Yeah. And she's got people that come into her yard. I, I know from being here for a few weeks. So I decided to, to not do that. So we wouldn't get interrupted today. Well, let's see. I had a good week. Um, I saw Dune with part one, which was cinematographically. Did I say that right? Cinematographically. Cinematographically spectacular. Oh, cool. Spectacular. I love the story. I read the books when I was probably 10 years old, 12, 15 years old. I don't remember. And uh, the first movie came out in the 80s and was really disappointing. So um, this the director is doing a really good job and it was, it was spectacular. So I'd highly recommend it. Even if you're not into science fiction, just the, um, the, the, uh, Graphics and the special effects and stuff are are amazing. Um, also, worth, my, worth seeing in the movie theater when it's like that. So. Yeah, if you get a chance, if it's still on IMAX, you see it on IMAX. But it's you know it's getting pushed off of IMAX by other movies coming out now. Um, and by the way, I mean this is obviously we're talking now. It'll be a week later by the time this comes out. So uh, that's the way it always works for us. Um, I had a really good, nice birthday weekend with my boys. My twins turned twenty nine. And we had a gathering, which we hadn't had really a maskless restaurant gathering in two years. So it was really yeah. nice. Um, you know, Sandy was there. Uh, Sandy's mom was there with her husband, Paul. And all four, all, all three of my boys were there. Maddie was not there. Maddie was in San Diego, but the boys were there. And we just had a really nice dinner. And um then uh, two days later at the dinner, we talked about the Vikings were in town to play the San Diego, or excuse me, I, I did it. I made the mistake. The Los Angeles Chargers at the new SoFi Stadium. And I hadn't been to SoFi Stadium and I'm a big Viking fan. Frustrated as that, frustrating as that may be. I've been frustrated for over 50 years. <laughs> um, you know, true fans are true fans. And so I asked who wanted to go to the game and all three of the boys said they wanted to go. And then we asked Maddie and Maddie, wanted to go. So she drove up and I took all four of my kids to SoFi Stadium on Sunday to see the Vikings win, actually. And we had a big skull chant going on. Skull, skull, skull. It was, it was just a lot of fun. I wore my Vikings jersey and uh, we had a great time. It was really nice to be out. And there were 70,000 people in the stadium and you had to have a vaccine passport or a negative PCR to get in. But they wanted you to wear masks, but nobody was wearing a mask. I mean, maybe 10% of the people were wearing masks. And um, it, it was celebratory and it was great. The only part about the stadium that isn't good is the parking lot. It's a mess. <laughs> so, I have a question to ask you about, yeah. about being with your family. I was talking to my cousin and she said, you know, there's just something, and she's been talking to her friends about it. And, I, and I've known, you know, I felt this since the very beginning, but I wanted to know if you could put your finger on it with your experiences. It's like, even though it feels like we're getting back to quote unquote normal or the new normal, yeah. you know, there's this underlying, like something's missing, right? You, mm -hmm. you feel you felt that so it was it's happy to be with your people right and you're like oh we haven't done this in two years but it's not there's just this essence that life is different well there's a there's a hesitation on some of my family members to hug still mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i also had um drinks I, I brought a bottle of wine two of my cousins were in town from minnesota and i brought a bottle of wine 
And we sat outside, they rented an Airbnb and we sat outside because they're older than me and they're both vaccinated, but they're still concerned about me being unvaccinated. Right. They're both physicians. So we were able to have a conversation and because we love each other, nobody was going to get mad at each other. Yeah. I asked the three major questions that you ask of anybody and you expect from physicians to have logical answers, but that's an unreasonable expectation these days because, you know, there's this global um, psychosis that goes on. And so they're vaccinated. So you ask the question, well, if you're vaccinated and it works, why are you worried about me? And they don't really have an answer for that. And they say, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily work all the time or blah, blah, blah. So then if it doesn't work all the time, why do you want to force, force me to have it? And then if someone's had COVID, then, you know, why do you want to force a vaccine on them? If you had measles, would you take the measles vaccine? They go, no. If you had mumps, would you take the mumps vaccine? No. So if you've had COVID, why would you force them to take it? And they don't have an answer. And then they, they even admitted, I mean, they're very intelligent people. And they admitted that, listen, Stuart, you're obviously much more well-read on this stuff. And you know a lot. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I have a podcast and I talk to clients about it. And so I keep up on it all the time. But my question in my brain, which I don't ask them is, well, why aren't you? Why aren't you looking into this? Why are you just, you know that it's not working well. You know that it's breakthrough and people can transmit it. And catch. And so in answer to your question, that was a long-winded answer to your question. No, I think it's good though, because our listeners are thinking about this as they're going to be gathering for the holidays coming soon. So I think it's an important thing that we've discussed, you know? Yeah. And to make a long story short, as they say, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's something, there's something that's not going to, that's missing. There's just something missing. There's not, there's no two ways about it. There's something missing. Different. Mm-hmm. We're all different. We're all different. Yeah. Um, the other thing on to, to, you know, piggyback on what you were saying. So we're having Thanksgiving dinner together and I'm the only one who I, we know of that hasn't gotten COVID because my boys got COVID, right. Who are unvaccinated. So the request from my aunt is that I, that I get a test and I'm gonna, because I, you know, fine, whatever, that makes you feel more comfortable. But my question to my cousin was if, if people who are vaccinated are getting COVID as well, then if we're gathering and we're actually wanting to be protect each other, I don't, you know, you could get it from a vaccinated person. So everybody should have a test if we're really, if we're really being smart about this, but I just leave it alone. I'm like, sure, I'll get a test. Fine. So there's um, over-the-counter tests now that you can buy at drugstores that are, there's some that are like a pregnancy test. I think I mentioned before the one that I'm going to be using that my cousin has, she can't use it because she has an Android phone, but it works with your iPhone. So I'll let you guys know about that. It's a, it's a test that you get the results within a few minutes and it's um, you submit through your iPhone somehow, which is great because that means that you could get a rapid test and you could have proof so that you could submit it for something like going to a concert or, you know, someone who actually needs something more formal than your family might just trust you. So this is a test to see if you are shedding the virus particle or whether you have antibodies. No, no, not antibodies that you actually are. You, you have COVID at that moment. Wow. I had not heard of that. Yeah. So I will, I'll update you guys on how this iPhone uh, rapid test goes, because it's nice for those of us who are choosing to uh, wait for a vaccination that actually works. Yeah. We should look Um, into this because I'd like to know who makes the test. Is it made by Pfizer? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but I'll let you know. So any births, anything like that? Yeah, no, I had one, but it's going to come up later in the show because it ties in with a letter. So oh, it's a be back after. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Great. you're, yeah. Awesome. So um, you wanted to talk a little bit about this time of year um, because it weighs heavily sometimes. So you have the mic. So go ahead. Okay. Well, as Stu said, um, the podcast comes out delayed a week. But tomorrow is um, the anniversary of uh, the beginning of us being in the ICU with my daughter. So it's really hard for me to declare a date that she passed. Um, we, were, we were in the hospital from the 18th to the 22nd. 
And so for me, that whole period of time is the time that I, um, you know, honor her passing and I will be gathering with some very good friends, um, in, uh, on the, on the ocean and, um, I'll be leaving for that tomorrow and Stu and Stu and I didn't plan this, but as I woke this morning and I started to think about the podcast, it just felt like that was the appropriate thing for me to talk about today. So we won't be talking the whole podcast about, um, about grief and loss, but it does seem really appropriate for me at this moment. So as many of you know, I've been on a journey. Um, I left uh, Sacramento, um, in the beginning of September. And I drove up the coast all the way to Washington and then made a full circle. And I'm back here again in Folsom for the holidays. And I did, you know, originally when I thought about this journey, taking some time off of midwifery and doing some soul searching, giving myself the space to grieve, um, because sky died November in November of 19. And then we went into COVID lockdowns, what, March 2020? Well, uh, March 13th or 14th, I think was the date that they yeah. shut down yeah. Yeah, everything. Yeah, so I had had some plans to take some time off. I was going to do some time off in Sedona in April, and then you and I had the Ecuador trip planned. Um, so I knew that I was going to have some space away, but then, you know, we all kind of life changed and we were, um, we were home and people, a lot of people were considering not doing hospital births during that time. So it was the busiest year I ever had, um, right after sky passed. And so I didn't really get the space and time to be alone and, and really give my, you know, the time to grieve. So that's what the, the journey was really about. It was really about seeing who I am and what's next for me and what's really important for me. And a lot of, a lot of the things that I hear that people go through when they have a significant loss like this. Um, so mine was a little delayed, but, um, yeah. So I want to, I want to, um, ask everybody forgiveness if I'm a little, uh, disheveled in terms of how I lay this story out, but, um, there's no, there's, no need, there's no need for that. And if people want to hear a more in-depth discussion about Sky, they can look back at our podcast number 162. Thank you. And um so yeah. I want I wanted to say thank you because there, you know, there it's there are friends and family along my journey, but 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 something I really wanted to speak to today were the midwives that held me. Shoot. I didn't put any tissues next to me. Um, the midwives who held me on this journey. Um, Ty Carson, of course, you know, was my home for a month on the Orcas Island. She was, she was the first hands that touched Sky. She was my midwife. And she gave me a soft place to land. Um, and that means everything to me. Uh, Willa Woodward Irwin and Todd Irwin, who are, um, were also my mentors as I was training, who lived in Oregon, who on the way up and the way back, um, took such good care of me and, uh, Willa's recovering from breast cancer and <clears throat> is just a beautiful person who was able to really sit and talk openly about grief and life and how things are changing. Carol Gauchi, who's one of my new friends who, you know, the universe just lined it up that she lived right where I was driving through. And we talked about classical midwifery and, um, and she's been keeping in touch with me since then and asking how things have been. <sighs> Augustine Colebrook, a good friend of mine who, again, the universe put right in my path. And so we reunited and had a really heart to heart about life and death as Augustine was very, very sick. And um, Jennifer Gallardo, who's owned the Anna Luz Birth Center where Augustine was nursed back to health. Um, I thank them both for hosting me. Hermine Hayes Klein, our guest um, that we had on the podcast, although she's not a midwife, she is a 
birth keeper and a passionate lover of midwifery. And um, she put me up in her beautiful yurt in her backyard and uh, just was a wonderful, wonderful guest. So these people are not friends. I mean, they are friends, but they're not people I knew ahead of time and they're not family. They're people who know how to hold space and know how to care for people because of what they've learned through midwifery or because they were born that way. And that's why they're in midwifery. And I just really wanted to take a moment to say thank you to them. Um, there was a letter that you and I spoke about a couple of times and I didn't read it before today. Um, but it seemed appropriate, which again, just feels like this serendipity that we didn't read it before today. But she's a midwife from New Jersey, and I'm not going to mention her name. She says, Dr. Stu's podcast on January 8th, 2020, which is the one that you just mentioned, which is when we talked about Sky. She says, she, she wrote me again, so I'm going back to the original letter. I'm a midwife in New Jersey who has been through much in my life that has led me to be with women in numerous ways, currently as a holistic provider. I have been listening to yours and Dr. Stu's podcast and came upon the podcast where you and Dr. Stu discussed the loss of your daughter, Sky. I wanted to say that I am truly sorry for your loss. I wish I had words. What a beautiful, soulful voice she had. She left such a gift for you and for others in her voice. I'm writing to say thank you to you and Dr. Stu for showing us that we can be better for others through our losses. No matter what happens our children to our children, we will have to go on. Having lost my niece, Laura, at age 25, I see unrecognizable strengths in my friend, Laura's mother. Mothers are awesome. You, Sky's mother, are awesomely strong. Being Sky's mother and a midwife, You've become such a witness to us all to live our best lives personally and professionally, not despite our losses, but because of our losses and the gifts that they have brought into our lives. I have been living in fear so long, afraid to be practicing, to be a practicing midwife for so many reasons. And most recently, I have been living in fear that I may not be able to be available for our 28-year-old daughter who is trying so hard to live her best life, but has been plagued with the curse of alcoholism, along with horrific domestic violence, goes through much in life. Truth be known, I cannot save her from her path. Like you, I thank Al-Anon for their valuable teachings. They have taught me and helped me through so much. Because of yours and Dr. Stu's podcast at almost 65, I find myself realizing that I have a right to my own voice. I have a responsibility to use my gifts wisely. I am not sure if any of this makes sense, but I had to say thank you so much for sharing yourself. Your vulnerability and Dr. Stu's vulnerability is making the world a better place. She talks in her second letter, which I'm not going to read, about possibly discussing in the future the value of applying the gifts of midwifery to a or our family in crisis um and it just has me you know thinking about what we do is much so much more than just attending births and catching babies you know we're we're part of people's lives um for a very long time you know, you had, you've had an experience with a family that had a loss and you guys are connected and bonded. And I have families who have moved on in their life and then lost other children or had miscarriages that I don't get to be present with them anymore, but they still reach out and we're connected in that way. So I just wanted to point to, you know, it seems like grief and birth may not be connected, but in many ways they're very connected. Um, because, you know, those are times when people who are spiritual or religious will say that the veil is very thin during those times, you know, but also we're so present, you know, we're so available. Our hearts are so open. They're open in different ways when we're dealing with death and when we're dealing with birth, but 
both times we're vulnerable. Our hearts are open. We're, we're, our eyes are open. You know, we're so much more appreciative of everything around us. Do you know what I'm pointing to when I say that, Stu? Yeah. 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 So I, I just want to yeah. say that, that sitting here listening to you, I feel like I'm one of the luckiest men in the world. Okay. Because I get to spend more than an hour with you, even when you're not here. Um, but I've known you for a really long time. And there are very few people I know in my life who have the wisdom that you have and uh, the eloquence to speak it so that, you know, not only me, but our listeners are, are forever grateful to just the way that you have a way of the way you have just the way about you and the things that you say and the way you say them. Um, yeah. We're all like, well, I thank you for that. Cause you. Some, thank you. Cause sometimes I sit there thinking and I think, does any of this make sense to anyone? So it's nice to get a little feedback that it's, that it's landing. So yeah, don't ever, don't ever stop, start, to, don't ever stop to think bliss because you do great when you're just rolling off the cuff and just, and just letting it out because it comes out and it's so beautiful and graceful and eloquent. And Thank you. we're all just in awe. Thank you. I speak for everybody who's listening. I, I hear so, it. So as I was driving, my mom, my mom lost her partner on, uh, on um, November 1st, which is um, Day of the Dead, interestingly enough. Um, so I changed my route um, coming home to go and spend a couple of days with her. Good. And uh, what'd you say? Good. Yeah, good. It was a nice visit. Um, and I was finishing this really beautiful book, which I highly recommend. I'll make sure that that um, the link for it is in our notes, but it's called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Um, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. And it was a beautiful book. Um, and this man, his name is Francis Weller. He talks about the gates of grief. And I really wanted to bring this up because what he's talking about is that we are all grieving. And this points back to what I was asking you when you were sharing about the time that you spent with your family. Um, so he has these five gates of grief. One is all that we love, we will lose. So inevitably, Death is coming for all of us and being alive and in a body means that we will lose people along our journey. But ultimately when we die, we lose everything. So the number one is that all that we love, we will lose. Number two is the places that did not receive love. So the parts in us that, that feel like we didn't get the love that we, as our natural born right need like part of being human is that we want to connect and love so it's these parts of places of ourselves that didn't receive love number three is the sorrows of the world which i know you when you get emotional and you're sharing from your deepest heart that's the grief that you are feeling is the sorrows of the world and i know many of us feel that whether it's because of what's happening with covid or you know, things that are passionate to us that we feel like other people don't necessarily appreciate. Or what he talks about a lot is the earth itself and what's happening to our planet and, and the species that we're losing and, you know, all of that stuff that we're all grieving for that when we really get present to it. Number four is what we expected but did not receive. So these times in life when we were just brokenhearted about something that we, you know, whether it's a marriage that failed or, you know, some goal that we, that we really wanted out of life. Right. So we, I, I'm sure that many of us can relate to the grief of things that we expected, but didn't receive. And then his fifth gate of grief is ancestral grief. So it's the grief of our lineage. So things that happened to our ancestors to the people that came before us you know whether that's things like the holocaust or um slavery or domestic abuse or alcoholism as our as our um the letter that i read um so this this book touched me 
profoundly. And, and given that we're in a place where we are holding the sorrows of the world, I really recommend that we, that those of you who are wanting to have some meaning inside of a time when we're all grieving, this is a really beautiful book. And as it was ending, I was, I was pulling up to my mom's house or, you know, I was on the way to, to see my mother who had just had this loss. And one of the things that he talked about was <clears throat> when we're meeting death, when we're, when we're on our deathbed, if we have the opportunity to know that we're getting closer to crossing over, that his desire is to be able to meet this transition with an open heart ready for the next part of his adventure without resistance, without fear. And I, you know, that spoke to me, like what a beautiful way to, to let go of this body, to, to leave our loved ones behind with, you know, that possibility. And what came to me and the words are still not perfect, but this is these are the words that I have for now. What came to me is making friends with my grief, making friends with grief, because if we're in this body and we're on this journey and we're, and you know, I made a decision early on in my grief that I have two boys to live for. And that if I'm going to be here in this body, continuing to live after I lost sky, I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to doesn't mean I don't honor my grief, but I don't want to, I don't want to lose out on living as well as I can and integrating the grief that I have. So it's like, if grief is part of life and this is the life and I'm going to do the best I can to live this life, then that's, that's kind of what is coming on this full circle of this journey. And I definitely am not saying that I'm done. I understand that grief is a lifelong journey but that's what came to me is making friends with grief. Um, and I just want, as I, as we're getting ready to, you know, gather first the anniversary of Sky's passing it being two years, you know, I know people wanted to know what was going on in my journey. And I hope that that can at least explain a little bit of, of where I am today. Well, that's a little deeper than, than where are you today? <laughs> um, <laughs> What's the yeah. name of the book and the author again? Because people probably want to. It's called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And it's by Francis Weller, W-E-L-L-E-R. And again, I'll make sure that there's a link. Um, and then the last thing that, that Stu and I wanted to do before we, um, before we take a little break, because it's hard to transition from grief to <laughs> whatever's next, right? Stop, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, is that we wanted to play the song that our listener had um, had mentioned. And for me, it's going to be a part of what I share with everybody annually is this song. And I think it's more powerful if you know the story. So I'll keep it short. But um, Sky was an interesting, <laughs> she, was, she was a difficult child to parent. And um, she was very passionate and very headstrong and she had a beautiful voice. And I always tried to encourage this gift that she had. And she was uh, 16. She was going through this patch in life where I was, I was worried about her. And um, so on, on Christmas in 2017, I bought her some studio time. And she was going to record a song. And when I, when we were driving to the studio, she was practicing. And I realized the song that she had chosen was a duet. And so I, um, I reminded her that it was a duet. And I wondered how she was planning to record a duet by herself. Um, and she said that she was thinking that maybe her dad would come. And her dad also has a beautiful voice. And he did. And so the song that you guys were about to hear is a song that Sky chose, which ended up being very ironic in its message. And you'll see what we mean. Um, and it's a song that she sung with her dad. And it's a song that we treasure because it now becomes a gift to people to remember to not take 
the time that you have with your loved ones for granted. So would you play it for us, Stu? I will. I found myself dreaming silver and gold like a scene from a movie that every broken heart knows we're walking on moonlight and you pulled me close split second and you disappeared and then i was all alone i woke up in tears with you by my side a breath of relief and i realized no and i promised tomorrow so i'm gonna love you like i'm gonna lose you and i'm gonna hold you like i'm saying goodbye wherever we're standing i won't take you for granted cause we'll never know when when we'll run out of time so i'm gonna love you like i'm gonna lose you i'm gonna love you like i'm gonna lose you in the blink of an eye just a whisper of smoke you could lose everything the truth is you never know so i'll kiss you longer babe any chance that i get I'll make the most of the minutes in love with no regrets. Let's take our time, say what we want, use what we got before it's all gone. Cause no, when I promise tomorrow, so I'm gonna love you like I'm gonna lose you. Skyland Gutierrez, December 28, 2000 to November 22nd, 2019. We're going to take a short break. You know yeah. what time it is? What time is it? It's booby time. <laughs> it's, oh, it's time for bamboobies. Yay! Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about bamboobies. And today, I wanted to talk. They're one of our partners who we love, and I wanted to talk a little bit about some of their side products. You know, we talk a lot about their their nipple shields and their all the things that you like so much. But they also have um, some uh, mixes for you put in milk for lactation support or water and energy boost. They have a nipple balm, they have a belly balm, and they have a stretch mark balm, which I am always skeptical about, but you know. Why not? Why not yeah. try it? So what's your experience with them? With with bamboobies? Yeah, just you, you know, give us your, your your love. Give them some love. 
really quick. <laughs> um, well, as you guys, those of you who have been listeners have, have known that um, I love environmentally conscious products. And so the fact that they use bamboo is a big thing and that they're reusable and that they use um, all natural um, herbs and, and salves is really a big deal in terms of how I make recommendations to my clients. So I'm a big supporter of their whole line. And when you get 40% off by going to bamboobies.com and putting in uh, code instincts, you can't go wrong in trying some of these products and they, and they, and they're supporting our podcast, which allows us to bring this information to you. So please support uh, bamboobies as one of our partners. Well, we're back. <laughs> we took a break. You guys had to listen to it to a lighthearted commercial, but um, we didn't. So <laughs> I'm grateful for that. You know, you can find this, by the way, on YouTube. I didn't know it was on YouTube till Bliss showed, shared it with me this morning. You can, I just searched Sky, S-K-Y-E. It'll probably scroll down. You'll find it. We'll put but, the link. Yeah, we'll put the link on the link tree or uh, in the podcast, but... Holy moly. Well, we have to move on. We do have to move on. So I wanted, I wanted to um, talk about a birth that I had, um, being that we're talking about <laughs> birth and death, which are yeah. intimately related and have yeah. been too sterilized in our society. We've removed birth and death from the home. Yeah. And it's probably not been a wise decision. Um, it's been a profitable one for certain industries, but not a wise decision for humanity. Yes. Oh, I just got I'm getting cat bombed here. Hi, <laughs> kitty. Um, so uh, I had a beautiful birth the other day, and it was um, a mom. Well, I can. They they're fine with me using their names, so I will go ahead and say Megan and Nick and little baby Crosby. Megan had had two previous cesarean sections. Uh, she never got to labor with either one of them, and she really, really, really wanted to have a vaginal birth after two cesareans, um, the doctor that she was seeing sort of said that he would support VBAC after two C-sections, but because his hospital had a policy that said, if she's laboring there, he has to be there. He's not willing to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So in other words, he's not supporting VBAC after two C-sections. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's paying lip service to it. And, you know, and, uh, with all defense to him, I mean, I understand where he's coming from. The We've talked about this many times on the podcast before, that the policies and reimbursement are such that it makes it almost impossible to comply with these policies and still continue to your life and your practice because they make them so restrictive. In other words, it's what's called a de facto ban. They're not banning VBAC, but they're making it so hard to do that no one's going to do it. And, and that's what happened. So she sought out care with us. And um, I met her probably, you know, maybe six weeks ago. I don't remember exactly when we, we met, but it was later in the pregnancy that she changed over to our practice. No, it wasn't. It was, I, it was somewhere in the middle, but it, was, it wasn't at the very beginning because she'd been going to this other doctor. Um, anyway, so about, uh, I think six days after her due date or five days, four days, five days after her due date, she went into labor and, uh, she initially, I think broke her bag of waters. Um, or so we thought, mm -hmm. and, um, then she lay, uh, she, her labor was sort of uh, on and off for a while, but to make another long story short, um, she ended up, um, pushing in the water. And her husband was supporting her. Uh, it was bed, the tub was right next to the bed. He was sort of leaning on the bed and supporting her. And, you know, with his eyes closed and just, they, they had a connection that was a magnificent to watch. Mm. Um, and we were listening intermittently. And then the, the heart rate, when she started to come down really close to delivering, um, the heart rate dropped to 80. So we got her out of the tub and onto the end of the bed. Um, Renee, the midwife, was on it. And I ran down to get my vacuum just in case. And by the time I got back, the heart rate was back up to the 110, 115 range. She pushed on uh, the bed then and within three or four pushes had a beautiful vaginal delivery with no tears. Uh, she was helping to ease the baby out with her own hand on, you know, holding the baby's head back as she eased the baby out. And 
Um, the husband did not want to catch the baby. So we got the baby out and she pulled it up on her belly. And you could just see going from, you know, that demeanor change that we see in pregnant women who, when they, they think they can't do it anymore, they're, they're at their limit. And then suddenly they're, they're crying tears of joy and, and just loving on their baby. And it was just a beautiful thing to watch. And I, you know, all births are special, but somehow when you do these VBACs, when they've never had a vaginal birth and it's something they really wanted. And it just, it does show that, that for some women, vaginal birth is a rite of passage. It's, a, it's something that's so important to them. Um, and for obviously for Megan, that was the case. And it was an honor uh, to witness that. Um, we were really never concerned about the risk of rupture. Um, so many doctors, that's the first place they go to. The risk is actually quite small. Uh, even after two C-sections, and even if the risk, and when the scar does separate, the risk of damage to an injury to a baby is quite small. Um, it's real. It's not something to be ignored, but it's not something to den deny women this opportunity. And of course, she, the problem, the reason she probably succeeded is because she was at her home and free to move about and free to eat and free to drink and free to be surrounded by the people that she wanted at her birth. And so it was a beautiful thing. Uh, so congratulations to them. Oh, and they named, their, they, they named their baby Crosby David, which is interesting. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, is it, you know, is that named after David Crosby? And said, yeah, but we like Crosby better. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love it. I love it. That's a great what a name. Great story. So that brings me to a letter from Caitlin. Fantastic letter, by the way, but it's long. Right. So I'm going to read it because it's triumphant. And I think it's really important. And it fits right in with the feedback after two C-section. Um, story that I just told you. So it says, hi, Dr. Fishbein. I have been following you in bliss for over a year and I'm so thankful for you both. The information and wisdom that you provide have changed how I approach all medical decisions, not just birth, but in every scenario I've, but in, but in every scenario, I've had two births that left me feeling traumatized vulnerable and misinformed. I am now pregnant again and have spent this entire pregnancy feeling empowered and like I have a strong voice in my decisions. I have you two to thank for a lot of that. So that's kind of cool. You know, these letters mean so much to us. You right. know, it just helps us know that we're that we're making a difference. So I'm glad you're reading it. Yeah, and I'm not reading it for the so that you and I can feel good. I'm reading it because no. <laughs> if I left out that paragraph then the, it wouldn't the rest of the letter would it would just wouldn't flow well. Right. Okay. okay. So she writes now, says, I'm looking for guidance on the risks of pursuing a VBAC after two C-sections with a previous uterine window. I will give you a brief history. My first pregnancy was in 2017 and was an ectopic pregnancy. My second pregnancy resulted in the birth of my first child in 2018. I had hypertension from about 30 weeks on. I also was very swollen. At 39 weeks, my blood pressure reached about 157 over 95. I love when they say about 157 over 95. <laughs> Pretty accurate. Right. Yeah. And I was feeling very nauseous and exhausted. My OBGYN recommended that I go to the hospital for evaluation, which was obviously quite appropriate at that time. Yes. Upon arrival, I was immediately told that I would likely be induced and that even if I didn't have preeclampsia yet, apparently I did not, and it never developed, although she did have hypertension and edema. So she must not have had anything else. It could develop at any time, and that would put me at risk of stroke and my baby at risk of major complications as well. So it's interesting that you know that's exactly where they people go when they're trying to counsel you. Is you know they talk about risks, and I guess they have to tell talk about that. It's certainly not unreasonable to tell her that she should be induced because she should be induced with those with yes. those blood pressure readings at term. There's no reason to keep waiting, but to leave yes. you know to go right to stroke and stuff like that as a way of getting her to choose that, I'm not so sure. As a scared first-time mom who put way too much trust in the medical system, I consented to induction. Not unreasonable, Caitlin, though. Um, yeah. It was a classic story of a cascade of interventions. Uh, cytotech, Pitocin, epidural, it did not take, no food, no water, continuous monitoring, Stuck in bed for 30 hours, exhausted, an OP baby, instructed to push while baby was still at negative two station, and I had zero urge to push. And after hours of pushing, I grew way too exhausted and could not keep going. I consented to a C-section. When I woke up, one of my first things my doctor said to me was, you know, you cannot have a VBAC if you stay in my, my patient, right? 
which I now realize was wildly insensitive and inappropriate. Yeah, it was. Um, the other thing too up, she talks about later on when she woke up. So they did a C-section electively and they did general anesthesia on her. Yeah. I don't know why they would do that. The only thing I can think of is that she had a low platelet count and maybe she did have severe preeclampsia uh, because they wouldn't want to stick a needle in her back if she had a low platelet count. But otherwise, why would they use general anesthesia? I don't know. Her epidural didn't work. Yeah, they could have given her a spinal. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. No, I got that. That's good pickup, though, Bliss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In 2019, I was pregnant again. Baby and I were both healthy with no risk factors other than my previous C-section. I found your podcast and a few others and began educating myself on the physiologic birth and informed consent. After interviewing seven different doctors and midwife practices, good for her, mm -hmm. I finally, it's too bad that that has to take place, but that's really good that she did that. Yeah. I finally found a midwife group that practices with the University of Michigan health system and that was willing to take me on as a patient. In Michigan, the birth culture is very medical and tends to not support VBAC more often than not. This time I labored at the hospital more or less undisturbed. My doula was not allowed due to COVID-19, but my husband was very supportive. I could eat and drink as I pleased and was able to move around. And then she says with these famous words, to keep a long story short. <laughs> That's the theme today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Around, around 24 hours after labor broke, or labor began, I was about seven centimeters dilated. I had consented to having my waters broken. Shortly after, the midwife felt that the umbilical cord had prolapsed, and I was rushed to the OR where I had another C-section. Mm. The doctors informed me that when they opened my abdomen, they discovered that I had a uterine window, but they repaired it. A uterine window is, what they're describing is where the uterine muscle has separated, but the peritoneum over the uterus is still there. So the uterus hasn't ruptured, but it's, there's just one thin layer of cells that are covering the, like a layer of cellophane. Okay. Um, I am pregnant again and wanting to experience labor for the third time. So she was completely dilated with her first baby, seven centimeters with her second baby. Great candidate for a VBAC. All right. Mm -hmm. I consulted with an OBGYN in the beginning of pregnancy to review the operative report from my last C-section and to make sure that the uterine window was repaired and get her opinion on the safety of another trial of labor. She felt comfortable with another trial of labor, but did say that she would schedule a C-section if I didn't go into labor by 39 weeks. I get your point. Silence says a pause. lot. Pause, yeah, pregnant pause, as they okay. say. I told her, no, thank you, that that was not an option for me. And I exclusively, <laughs> and I exclusively okay. saw the midwife after that. Mm -hmm. Good. Advocating for herself, good. All mm -hmm. of a sudden today, my midwife called me she said she felt a gut check that she had missed something in my history. And when she reviewed my chart, she remembered the uterine window. She showed the operative report to an OBGYN in the group and also to a high-risk OBGYN, I assume an MFM doctor, who both recommended a C-section at 37 weeks. He said my risk of uterine rupture is now 10%. From my own research, it seems that there is not a lot known about the risks associated with uterine window and subsequent uterine rupture. Uh, this makes me question where the doctors are getting a 10% risk for uterine rupture from. And I, I questioned it also. By the way, she did send me her op report um, because I did set up a, um, a Zoom consult with her. She had a lot of questions that just was deserving of answers but could not be answered in a simple response. So I do have my service that you and I have talked about before, the consultation service on my website that people can go. And so she signed up. And I set up a Zoom. We have a Zoom consultation. And the uh, op report essentially describes the repair as, as this. The thin, the thin segment of uterus, a window approximately 0.5 centimeters by four centimeters, was too thin to reincorporate into the hysterotomy. So this was removed. The uterine incision was repaired with ovicral in a running lock fashion. A second layer of the same suture was used as an imbricating fashion to obtain excellent hemostasis. So she had a two layer closure, which again is Nice, but it basically, but it essentially removes the risk of a uterine window because now her uterus has been repaired like it normally would be. So they removed the portion that was too thin and then and then sutured it oh, as they shut. would if they had opened it. Although it it is uh, pulled maybe more 
tight or there's less tissue or there's that, right? No, no, they're taking out a tiny half centimeter little clear area of peritoneum is what they're taking out. Okay. Okay. And, and then and then repairing the uterus like they would if they had just cut through it with a, a C-section yeah. with a two-layer closure. It's so interesting. I, so yeah. the whole thing dates back to, I don't know where the 10% risk comes from. I, I, I could not find data that supports that number. I think these are numbers that people just pull out of their you-know-what. Okay. It is my hope that you might be able to They're offer that. What? What did you say? He said there, you know what? I translated. They pulled yeah. it out of their butt. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you might be able to uh, offer me guidance on the actual risk of rupture. Um, no, I can't because, but it's, there's not a lot of data on that, but it's, it's not high. And no matter what the number is, ultimately the decision of whether to do it or not is yours. It's not 10%. I have attached my operative report. Okay, we got through that. All right, so then she says, I have been under general anesthesia for both of my previous births and this absolutely breaks my heart. Please help me to determine the risks and benefits of another C-section versus spontaneous labor. It is my hope to experience spontaneous labor and a vaginal birth. I really struggle with both C-sections mentally and physically and don't want to go through that again unless it does make sense medically. She says, here are my questions. What are the risks of a third C-section and a fourth C-section if we want more children? Unbelievably good question. Right? Yeah. And the answer to that is every time you have a C-section, you increase risk to you and all your future babies. So it gets, goes up and up. Uh, I don't have the specific numbers, but I know somebody who does. And if you went to VBAC Facts, Jen Camel's um, website, she's got information on this, but she also says, and I think I'm quoting her correctly when I say that after two C-sections, the risk of a placenta accreta is greater than the risk of rupture for a trial of labor. She asks, if the window was repaired in the second cesarean, is the assumption that my tissue is prone to windows and the estimated 10% risk? And I would say no. I would say that every time you do a C-section, the way it heals is, is independent. Um, there's really, from what I know, there's no tissue problems with the way muscle heals in certain people. Um, that, that's different than people who form keloid scars or have Know, other problems with healing, this is a completely different thing. So I don't have the op report from her for C-section. I don't know how they closed her uterus. Um, but even if they closed it properly, windows happen. And a window, one of those things about windows is we don't know how often they happen. Yeah. They're only found when someone's having a repeat C-section. Right. 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 Um, and, I, and, I, and I love the, you know, I use the analogy that you used, that I've heard you say, which is, you know, when you think about a rupture, you think about a tire blowing out on the freeway, which I had a blowout now, so I know exactly what that looks <laughs> yes, like. Yes, you did. Um, but it's it's more of a dehiscence. So it's an opening. It's like a, a an opening of the old scar, but it's not a explosion as, as uh, you know, where the words uh, rupture makes us think of. So I think that that's good to... Yeah, well. in my in my reviewing of the literature years ago, and I you know I haven't reviewed it recently because the literature was pretty good back then. That of those scars that separate, which is called a dehiscence, about five, between five and sixteen percent of those babies will suffer a catastrophic injury. All right, so that means that eighty-four to ninety-five percent of women who have a uterine window or a scar dehiscence will not suffer a problem. Um, so you have to take that into account and you have to take, multiply that one in five or one in 16 by the, the risk of, of rupture in general to get the actual risk of a dangerous blowout <laughs> on the freeway. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what did you tell her, Stu? Well, she asked a couple more questions. If uterine rupture occurs, how likely is it? Oh, about that answer. No, no, keep going. Yeah. You keep going. If, you, if uterine rupture occurs, how likely is it to be detected early enough to intervene? Well, this is a good question. Because if it's a catastrophic uterine rupture um, and you had a normal heart rate tracing going into that point and you're in a hospital, um, you have around 14, maybe to 17 minutes at the most before the baby's going to suffer a, probably a hypoxic injury to its brain. So can a, if you're in the hospital and suddenly you have a uterine rupture that occurs with no pre-warning, can you get a baby out in 14 to 17 minutes? Very rare. Very rare that some hospitals can do that. Most hospitals cannot do that. Now, are there signs or symptoms ahead of time? 
in more than half the cases, yes, but many, but almost half the cases don't have any signs or symptoms. It just suddenly happens. Symptoms or signs would be um, a change in the nature of the discomfort you're having. Like if you're having contractual pain, you know, that's coming every three minutes, that's fine. Suddenly you're having like a burning or searing pain that's constant. That's even in between contractions. So no epidural would be a good thing at that well, point. Epidural, so that could, epidural can hide that. That's correct. I was yeah, just going to say so that. that you could you could actually be able to distinguish what's happening in your body and be able to communicate it. Yeah. Second thing would be a change in the fetal heart rate tracing. Mm -hmm. So obviously if you're going to have a VBAC at a hospital, they're probably going to have a policy that says you have to be monitored. So you're going to be on a, on a monitor. You can, you can dispute that. You can say, I don't want to be monitored. That's fine. And you should be able to do that because then you have a better chance of success because you can move. But um, if you're being monitored, they'll start to see either a rising heart rate or they'll start to see variable decelerations, which get quite deep. And that would be a, a sign that of an impending problem. Yeah. And if you're advocating for being in the hospital and you don't have a provider who would let you do intermittent monitoring, then maybe having a hospital that has uh, wireless monitoring, which they do have, they have monitoring that can even be, and you can go in the shower with it. So um, that would be another option to advocate for. Right. And then there's a weird, rare things like shoulder pain, which can imply that you're bleeding internally, but that that's a rare thing that you're not going to probably see very often. Um, again, almost half or, or even, I might be even more than half have no signs or symptoms before something catastrophic happens. That's why so many people have windows that are discovered for no reason, because they had no symptoms. Right. right. If a rupture occurs, what are the risks to mom and baby? Well, the risks to mom are small. Um, hemorrhage, probably possibly transfusion, very rare cases of a, of a hysterectomy uh, to control the bleeding, but it's very, very rare that that would be necessary. Uh, most of the time, the mother will, will recover. Baby, on the other hand, will not most of the time. If you can get the baby out quickly, you're, you're fine. If it's true uterine rupture, um, if, it's, um, if you, don't have, you can't get the baby out quickly, you're, you're not going to have a good outcome. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, as I said, how often do uterine ruptures result in catastrophic outcome? Again, if you have a true rupture, it's somewhere between 5 and 16%, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah. Um, so, okay. More? Can I add a couple things? Yeah, no, no, because take a break, because then we have a, we have a follow-up to that, those questions. So go. Okay. So the other thing is avoid Pitocin. Just avoid Pitocin because it's a synthetic way that your uterus is contracting. So there's more likelihood that your uterus is not going to respond. A uterus that already has scar tissue is not going to respond well to that. So avoid any augmentation of your labor. Um, and then, you know, if you do advocate or if you, if you know that it's a possibility that you might be having a cesarean and this is not an easy thing to do, but this, it seems, this woman seems very committed. She interviewed seven providers before her second delivery, right? So, um, find someone who's willing to do a gentle cesarean. So being conscious, having a drape that's, that's clear or lowered, um, having, being able to assist in the delivery, you know, those kinds of things, planning for a more positive experience for a cesarean, maybe something that could help her if she ends up needing to have one, not having the same trauma that she had the first time as well. Yeah. Okay. And then also, like you said, um, first of all, cytotech is absolutely contraindicated. Uh, Pitocin augmentation is often used in, uh, and not contraindicated, but we do have to remember from our research from a couple of weeks ago that the use of Pitocin to augment labor apparently is off-label. <laughs> right. So, yeah. but, it's, but it's condoned, all right? Um, so, follow-up five days ago. Yeah. Um, from today's podcast. Hi, Dr. Stu. I'm writing to give you an update. In a surprising turn of events, I gave birth to a baby girl on Saturday. I am so incredibly grateful for your counsel and wisdom. You gave me information, and this was from after our consult. Yeah. You gave me yeah. information in a way that wasn't scary and was very digestible. And because of that, my husband and I were able to make the decision that felt best for us. Now to the story. We decided that waiting for labor to start spontaneously and having a vaginal delivery was the best decision for baby and me. Right. I started having contractions a couple of days before she delivered. I was in denial, though, 
because I was only 37 weeks and five days and I didn't expect the baby to come for another two to three weeks. Yeah. What do we say about expectations? <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a, the, um, the, the key to happiness is having no expectations, right? Right. All right. So on, this, on the day of her birth, on the baby's birth, her water broke at three in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, and contractions uh, within two hours were three to four minutes apart. So they headed to the hospital. Upon arrival, she was four centimeters and 80% of face. Remember, she'd been completely dilated before. Yes. So the midwife on call was incredible. Yay. She said, what? Oh, yay. I said, yay. Yeah. She said, <laughs> I, got a lawn, I got a lawnmower outside. So <laughs> she said, after reading your chart, I know you were still considering a repeat C-section. How are you feeling now? Where, you're, where is your head at? That was the question the midwife asked her. Lovely. And I told her I wanted to have an unmedicated vaginal birth. And she said, okay, let's do this. I'm here for yeah. you to support you and assist you in whatever ways you need. I'm going to cry again. <laughs> and from this moment, she kept her word. I was left alone to labor with my husband and doula. I ate when I needed to, moved freely, and had endless support from the midwife and nurses. I pushed on my knees facing the back of the bed only when I felt urges to push. <laughs> Incredible. Um, she used warm compresses to support my perineum, and after an hour and a half, baby girl was born. My husband caught her, and they immediately placed her on my chest. They didn't even suggest taking her from me to check her. I have zero tears or lacerations, and we were able to go home the next day. I could never have imagined such a beautiful birth in a hospital. After having one unplanned cesarean and a terrible induction experience, and then one emergency C-section due to cord prolapse, and being asleep when both babies were born, this experience mm -hmm. has to be beyond healing and magical, has been beyond healing and magical. I feel so connected to my baby in a way that I had never felt so early with my others. And I just wrote down that that's triumphant. And I, it's the definition of triumphant. So that's, that's Caitlin's story. I love it. I'm very, uh, I'm very moved that she got to have that opportunity. And what I was thinking is like, you know, this is, this is like the, the best possible scenario of how we provide care for families is that you get informed consent about what your risk is. And because she had had a cesarean and even two cesareans, she had an increased risk. So her choice may have been in the best possible situation that she had options. She may have chosen, I want to be in the hospital just in case, but she was able to have all of these other things like eating and having a supportive provider and being able to deliver in the position that she wanted. And, you know, all of those other things inside of a, a hospital where she could get treatment quickly if she needed it as her right to be informed. So I just love, I love that she was able to have a vaginal delivery to be present and conscious in the birth of her daughter. And also just, you know, like, it just makes me think like that's, this is the way that we could have collaborative care and we could have options for women. You know, some women may choose to deliver at home, even with the risk, and some may want to be in the hospital. So. Yeah. And if the University of Michigan health systems can support her in this way, why can't every other health system support her in this way? So, so right. shout out, kudos to the University of Michigan and their health systems uh, that support her and the the fact that they use midwives in their labor and delivery, mm -mm -mm, good stuff. <laughs> so I had a whole bunch of other stuff, obviously, for the schedule today, but we got long-winded appropriately. So I think we'll just uh, we'll just end it there. What do you think? I love it. I think it's great. I'm going to go out to lunch with my family, and uh, as I said when you and I took our little break, on um, you know listening to Sky's song today virtually with you obviously wasn't the same as when we sat together and you were able to put your hand on my knee and console me and you know we could cry together but I really appreciate you giving me the space to share with you and with our listeners um, my journey so far and I and I loved this uh, information that you gave us in the second half of the podcast today and I can't say thank you enough for sharing your wisdom about uh, birth and grief and 
And uh, the thing that's sticking in my head right now that I want to leave our listeners with is the, the thing that you said about making friends with grief. So we'll, we'll just leave it there. So until next time, everybody, thanks for listening and bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 